welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 332 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Soyuz 11 slash Salyut 1, The Fire. To the TV audience of the Soviet Union, the flight of Dubrovsky, Volkov, and Patsayev had settled into an established routine with the cosmonauts working to the timetable of scientific experiments, exercises, and other activities. The program was going as planned, and the crew were in excellent spirits. There was not even the slightest hint in their television transmissions of the clashes between Volkov and Dubrovsky. At flight control, Yelizhev, Nikolaev, Baikovsky and Gorbatko, who were jointly responsible for communicating with the station, worked hard to calm the tensions on board. Day 11, Wednesday, June 16, 1971, was proceeding as expected. Dubrovsky and Volkov performed a test of the various methods for controlling the station. Additionally, they checked the accuracy of the ION automatic control system, They also checked the intensity of the flashes while the attitude control system's engines were firing, and later they studied the cloud formations in the upper atmosphere using a radio mass spectrometer. Reading from Dobrovsky's notebook, June 16th, quote, At the beginning, we did not drink much water, nor did we eat the assigned amounts. But, like at home, we ate when we felt hungry. However, the days are passing and we are slowly adopting the planned regime. Stupid weightlessness. Another pencil has gone. Weightlessness is an interesting state. I am writing this with Victor's pencil. I lost mine a long time ago. Almost all our pencils have gone. End quote. It appears that apart from problems with weightlessness and the lost pencils, the mission was progressing normally. But suddenly, the situation changed. Just before the start of another communication session, Volkov noticed a smell of smoke from somewhere at the rear of the station. As soon as communication with the ground was established, he reported, Aboard! The station! is the curtain. The anxiety in his voice was evident. To confuse the Westerners, eavesdropping on the station's transmission, a number of code words had been defined, and the words, the curtain, meant something related to fire and smoke. Unfortunately, the ground controllers had forgotten what this code meant, and they asked Volkov for an explanation. He furiously shouted in plain language, There is a fire on board. We are now entering the ship. He meant that they were retreating to the Soyuz. Volkov added that there was also a strong smell of burning electrical insulation. In their haste, the cosmonauts neglected to get the instructions for an evacuation. So Volkov requested assistance, saying, Read us the instructions for an emergency undocking from the station. When the flight control asked for information about the source of the smoke, 
they were told that it was coming from a panel on the aft wall which separated the habitable part of the station with the propulsion section. The controllers could tell from the agitated voices that their crew were alarmed, but while it was logical to evacuate the station, they did not want the cosmonauts leaving if there was a possibility to extinguish the fire. The first thought that came to mind was one of the scientific instruments had caught fire. At that time, Soviet scientific organizations had yet to develop highly reliable equipment for use in space, and some faults were likely. Flight controllers Yelizhev and Nikolaev acted to gain control of the situation by telling the crew to switch off the scientific equipment, try to find the source of the smoke, and then retreat to the Soyuz. But the Salyut went out of range of the tracking station before the cosmonauts could report back. During the communications blackout, the leaders of the various groups at flight control met to plan what to tell the crew to do during the next session. Their problem was that they did not know the situation on the station. Were the cosmonauts in the Soyuz? Had they sealed the hatch to the station? Might they even have undocked? So the flight controllers were forced to prepare for the likely scenarios. The worst-case possibility was that they had undocked the spacecraft from the station. In that case, ground control would need several orbits to determine the status of the station. If the cosmonauts had remained near the station, would they have enough fuel and life support to dock again? This had to be calculated. Then another possibility. If they had undocked, did they close the station's hatch before undocking? Because if they didn't, Salyut 1 was lost. If they had undocked, it was decided there was no urgency about the Soyuz. Instead, flight control would focus on the status of the Salyut, the composition of the atmosphere, and the status of the power supply system. To do this, they would switch on the internal camera and assess the telemetry. The other possibility was the cosmonauts were still on board the station. In that case, flight controller's first priority would be to calm them down. It was logical to assume that the cosmonauts would probably have switched off the faulty instrument. But what if that had no effect? Then the situation would be urgent. It was decided that two additional plans were needed. One for an urgent evacuation of the station, and the other for a normal evacuation that would return the station to automatic mode. Also, they would need a plan to remove the smoke from the station. And a longer period of communication would also be necessary. So, they urgently connected all the command measuring sites and arranged additional telemetry communication channels from the Ministry of Telecommunications. After the specialists had dispersed from their brief meeting to work on their assignments, Minister Afanishev, General Karimov and members of the Central Committee called from Moscow to ask what was happening on the Salyut. Flight Director Yelizhev only told them that a scientific instrument had caught fire. The cosmonauts had switched off all the instruments and specialists at the flight control were studying a number of options to overcome the problem. 
Yelijayev also called Chief Designer Mission, who immediately convened a meeting with Tregrub, Vyaktistov, and Chertov. Mission told the OKB-1 team that Yelijayev had just reported that there was a fire on the Salyut and the crew was preparing for an emergency landing. They must alert Kamanin to prepare the recovery team. Tregrub was assigned to work with the ballistics group to determine the best orbit on which to undock to ensure that the landing would be on Soviet territory. The controllers met again five minutes before the next communication session and Yelizhev's team prepared brief instructions appropriate to each of the possible scenarios. He also invited Eleonora Kapivna who had spent a lot of time studying the crew in training and could evaluate their capabilities in an emergency situation. For Yelizhev, it was important to have someone on hand to assist him in providing the most important instructions to the cosmonauts in the brief time available during the communication session. When radio contact was again possible, Yelizhev called. Yantar, this is Zarya. Online? Instead of Station Commander Dabrowski, who was responsible for reporting on incidents as serious as this, the response came from Volkov. Zarya, this is Yantar. We hear you well. Zarya called. Where are you? Volkov replied. In the station. Zarya called. Report what is happening. Volkov replied. The smoke isn't being produced anymore but there is still smoke in the station. We have headaches. It was evident from Volkov's voice that he was tired, almost exhausted, but there was no sign of the previous anxiety. The smoke had come from the control panel of the scientific apparatus located on the wall at the rear of the main working compartment. This suggested that the problem was simply the failure of one of the science experiments. The controllers were greatly relieved. The instructions for the situation were very simple, to switch on the filter to cleanse the atmosphere. Now Flight Director Yelizhev and Colonel Gorbatko attempted to calm the crew and convince them to continue the mission. For reassurance, Yelizhev explained the procedure for abandoning the station, saying, the order of the steps for an emergency evacuation is printed on your pages 110 to 120 of the manual. It lists what you should do after you transfer into the descent module. After transfer, prepare the spacecraft according to instructions on 7KT, pages 98A and 98B. To undock, read pages 133 to 136. However, return only on command from the earth. Do not hurry. With the panel switched off, the smoke should cease. If you choose to depart, leave the filter on. Take tablets for your headaches. The telemetry indicates that the carbon dioxide and oxygen concentrations are normal. The commander will make the decision about transferring to the ship and undocking from the station. As commander of the station, Dabrowski understood that it was time for him to take control of communication, and he transmitted, Zarya, I am Yantar-1. We understand there is no hurry. 
The scientific equipment is switched off. Now two of us will be on duty. One will rest. Don't worry. We want to continue working. Zarya replied, Yantar 1, this is Zarya. We have analyzed the onboard systems and we believe our recommendations will restore the situation. We hope you will be able to continue the flight according to plan. The smell of the smoke will disappear. We suggest that you rest tomorrow, then resume the normal activities. Later, after you have left the communication zone of the ground stations, the tracking ship Academician Sergei Korolov will contact you. Cosmonaut trainer General Kamanin, who was planning to fly to Yevbatoria on the afternoon of that same day, had been informed of the problem by General Shatilov. When Kamanin arrived at Yevbatoria, Colonel Baikovsky told him the situation had improved and there was no longer smoke, just the smell of soot. But in the last six hours, the crew had been so busy that they had not eaten dinner and therefore were in need of rest. But there was another crew issue to address. During the emergency, Volkov had become extremely nervous and as the veteran had usurped Dabrowski's role and attempted to resolve the situation by himself. When he used expressions like, I decided and I did, in conversations with Yelisheyev, Nikolaev, and Baikovsky, it became clear that he was too emotional and independently minded to realize or acknowledge his errors. In one of his last interviews published in 1989, Chief Designer Mission recalled that he had a complex conversation with Volkov after the accident. Mission said, quote, Volkov declared himself to be in command. When the cable burned, they lost their heads and wanted to depart the station. I calmed them down. In addition, Mission ordered Volkov to respect the commander, saying everything must be solved by the crew commander. Carry out his orders. But Volkov replied, The whole crew decides things together. We will sort out how to proceed ourselves. At 10.30 p.m., the station entered the communication zone on its 155th orbit with the crew on board. Dubrovsky and Patsayev had calmed Volkov and sent him to rest, and he had fallen asleep. Kamanin conversed with Dubrovsky and Patsayev. After recounting the sequence of events on the station and describing the health of the crew, Dabrowski judged the situation to be almost normal, although it was clear that they were exhausted by the day's events. He concluded that they would probably be able to continue the flight. In his diary, cosmonaut trainer Kamanin wrote, quote, Prior to the launch of Soyuz 11, we agreed with Dabrowski that in describing the status of the station and the crew, if he had no doubt about continuing the flight, he should say outstanding or good. And if he had doubts, then he should say satisfactory. But the station commander forgot this. End quote. Kamanin was also dissatisfied that Dabrowski appeared to have deferred to Volkov, who, after reminding everyone that he was the most experienced member of the crew, had dominated the communications with flight control. A few orbits later, 
the ship Akademician Sergei Korolev made contact with the station and then informed the controllers at flight control that the situation on board was improving. Dabrowski and Patsayev had eaten a meal and Volkov was still asleep. The sudden emission of smoke in the station had strained the relationships between the members of the crew to the limit. During the crisis, the cosmonauts continued to make entries in their notebooks. One remark by Dabrowski clearly indicated his concern. Quote, If this is harmony, what is divergence? End quote. The next day, while the controllers analyzed the telemetry received from the station, the crew visually inspected the location of the fire, identified the faulty apparatus, and isolated it from its power supply. It was the fan to cool the panel for controlling the orientation of some of the scientific equipment. When the fan seized, the motor had continued to try to drive it, and the winding of the stator had overheated and issued a dense smoke. Although there had been no flame, as such, this was the first case of a fire on the manned space station. On the recommendation of flight control, the cosmonauts reactivated the instruments one by one until all the scientific equipment was again operational. Although the filter removed the smoke, the crew remained concerned about the composition of the atmosphere. Although the Soviet press resumed their familiar routine of station coverage on June 18th, the radio monitors at the Kittering Grammar School in England detected telemetry on the Soyuz 11 frequency, the first such transmission since June 9th, indicating that for some unannounced reason, the cosmonauts had powered up their Soyuz. The next day, day 14, Saturday, June 19th, the cosmonauts performed medical examinations and operated such scientific apparatus as flight control permitted. In fact, the control group had decided to scale down the scientific experiments, prohibit the communication of unnecessary information, and gradually increase the physical exercise regime in preparation for the cosmonauts' return to Earth. Several times during the day, the cosmonauts were moved from one experiment to another. There were physicians, biologists, astronomers, and meteorologists, and the scientists back on Earth eager for the results. Astronomers wanted the observations from above the atmosphere of cosmic radiation that would provide information on how the universe was structured. Physicians and biologists wanted to know how the human body and other organisms reacted to long-term exposure to space, both in terms of weightlessness and the radiation environment. Physicists wanted to know how various materials behaved. Fluids, for example, displayed interesting properties in weightlessness. Technologists wanted to know if it would be possible to create whole new ranges of materials possessing unique attributes. When Salyut was being designed, the Academy of Sciences had suggested that a scientist be included in the crew, the logic being that only a scientist could analyze the results of an experiment in space and suggest a procedure 
to follow up on interesting observation. However, because a commander and a flight engineer were required to operate the station and the Soyuz could accommodate a maximum of three cosmonauts, there was room for only one researcher on the crew. It was therefore decided that the third member of each crew should be a professional cosmonaut who had been trained as a researcher and investigator, which is why Pat Saif's role on the crew was research cosmonaut. The scientific program was developed by the scientist, who spent a great deal of time explaining how to use the apparatus and how to analyze the results. In addition, senior representatives for each scientific investigation were permitted access to flight control, and there was a special radio channel between the scientist and the station's crew to enable the scientists to discuss the performance of their experiments and to offer the cosmonauts advice. Although the scientists and the crew worked together closely, the cosmonauts never spoke the surnames of the scientists on the radio for security reasons. When an experiment was successful, the contented scientists were often able to exit flight control with graphs and tables. If a problem developed, then the scientists would retire to attempt to understand the failure and devise a remedy for the next opportunity. Despite some frustrations, the experience gained in attempting to undertake a scientific program on an orbital station was priceless. Sometimes a modification of the apparatus or a revised operating procedure was suggested for a future flight. In some cases, it was concluded that the work would be better done by an automated satellite. For example, once a telescope had been precisely aligned on a celestial source, the observation could be marred by the vibration of the station in response to the cosmonauts moving around. But on the other hand, there was merit in testing new apparatus on manned stations to ensure that it worked properly prior to assigning it to an automated satellite. In addition to the scientific experiments conducted this day, the cosmonauts continued their medical program by taking measurements of their cardiovascular systems and bone density. They also assessed the ability of their eyes to differentiate colors in order to determine the degree to which the eye is affected by weightlessness. Conditions inside the station had returned to normal. The temperature was 22 degrees C, the pressure was 880 millimeters of mercury, and the smell of smoke had cleared. Coincidentally, the birthday of Viktor Patsev on this day, June 19th, further served to relieve the stress on the crew. At 7.13 a.m., Zarya transmitted, We are sending happy birthday greetings to Viktor Ivanovich. We wish him successful work. Patsayev replied, Thank you. Zarya continued, We hope that the commander will organize a party. Dabrowski replied, We offered him a day of rest apart from physical exercise, but he has so much technical work to do. At 10.19 a.m., Zarya called again, saying, Yantar 3, Again, we are sending our greetings on your birthday. We wish you a successful flight and happiness in your life. 
Your family sends the most sincere wishes. Patsef replied, Thank you for your greetings. Although you are far away from us, we always feel your support. Patsev's 38th birthday was the first Soviet birthday to be celebrated in space. Considering the recent crises and tensions between the members of the crew, the psychologist at Flight Control had prepared a special program. Patsev's wife and children were in the communications center in Kaliningrad watching the TV signal from the station. With them was the famous TV anchor, Yuri Fokin. The communications officer was Nikolaev. Nikolaev transmitted, How is the table prepared? Patsev replied, The table is prepared excellently. Cold veal, cookies, and blackberry juice in tubes. Nikolaev replied, Did you find the bottle? He was referring to the traditional bottle of celebratory champagne. Patsev laughed and said, No, we didn't. We looked for the bottle everywhere, but we couldn't find it. The delicacy was the onion, which was a present from Volkov. We sliced it into three parts and shared it. Zora's present was a lemon. The onion and lemon were smuggled on board by Volkov, especially for the first birthday in orbit. The TV viewers could see the table set with tubes of juice, cheese, fruits, nuts, and cans of veal. The items were held in place by tape across the table. Patsev sat at the table and Dabrowski and Volkov floated in the background, smiling happily. Not having champagne glasses, they toasted loudly with the blackberry juice tubes. Patsev said that of his presence, he most enjoyed the onion, which was the first fresh food that any of them had tasted since entering space. Years later, Patsev's son Dmitri recalled the event, saying, quote, We were invited to the communication center and had a chance to talk with Dad, but only for a brief time. I don't remember what we said. I was 13 years old and there were many interesting devices in the room that distracted me. However, I do remember that Dabrowski and Volkov presented an onion to him. End quote. After the communication session, Patsev's friends gathered in his apartment in Moscow, where his wife Vera had prepared a celebratory lunch. It was an unusual birthday party as the person being honored was not present. Someone had a bottle of French champagne, but it was decided to defer opening it until Victor was home. A note was affixed to the bottle, bearing the signatures of all the attendees, together with the message, quote, Vicha, you were searching for this bottle in space, but it was here on earth, end quote. Day 15, Sunday, June 20th. On this day, the Salyut space station was scheduled to complete its 1,000th orbit since its launch on April 19th. This was a very significant milestone for the world's first space station. Volkov recorded this in his diary for June 20th.
The third week of our work in orbit has started, but the station has been in space for two months, making 1,000 orbits. Because Commander Dabrowski and Research Engineer Pat Sayev are sleeping, I will be on duty at the time of the 1,000th orbit. In the sleeping bags, I can only see their heads. In these beds, you get so comfortable that sometimes you grow reluctant to get up. There is only one orbit until the 1,000th circle. It has just started the 999th. In a few minutes, Zarya will call me. Through the static, I hear. Yantar, here is Zarya. Online? Zarya, I am Yantar too. I hear you excellently. Yantar too, how is it going? How is it going? Normal. My crewmates are asleep. With no one to talk to, I don't feel so cozy in this huge space home. It is a feeling that is familiar to anyone who, as the sailors say, has duty on the ship's bow. As I speak to you, I feel as if I am at home. I know that the weather below isn't very good, but cloudy, windy, and rainy. Up here, away from the portholes, the sun is blinding and the earth is covered with the clouds. Volkov continues. The communication session is over. The next will be on the 1,000th orbit. How long will my two crewmates sleep? Will I alone see the number 1,000 appear on the display of the globe? No, the crew commander will be with me. I will awaken him in half an hour. He will take the duty and communicate with Zarya. In these final moments, the only thing I do is watch the onboard clocks. Yes, the first seconds of the Jubilee orbit have begun. And that is the end of the diary excerpt. At 2.14 a.m., the Salyut space station completed its 1,000th orbit. It was in the communication zone at the time, and cosmonaut Gorbatko was the communications officer at flight control. He pointed out that the crew had been on board for only 206 orbits and joked that perhaps they should remain for an additional 1,000 orbits. While in radio contact, the crew reported observations of the Earth and its atmosphere that they had made in recent days, including a huge African sandstorm. According to the flight plan, June 20th was supposed to be a day of rest in space. And, for the most part, the cosmonauts did rest, but they also monitored the Earth, its clouds and oceans, and made observations of the stars. In addition, Dabrowski provided a TV report for viewers on Earth. In lieu of recent events between Dabrowski and Volkov, this report was probably an attempt by flight control to highlight Dabrowski's role as the station's commander.
Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 332 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Soyuz 11 slash Salyut 1, The Fire. Hope you enjoyed this 7th anniversary episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. We will have a little anniversary ceremony in a few minutes, so stick around for that. Our next episode will be released on February 27th. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 162 are available on the archive. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. should be available on all podcatchers. Okay, I did have a few afterthoughts on this episode. I guess one of the most frightening things that can go wrong in a confined space such as a space station would be a fire. It consumes your oxygen. There is potentially deadly smoke and I guess the possibility for even an explosion. I can understand how that could scare the living daylights out of the crew. Personally, if I was there, I would be in the Soyuz waiting to leave. But, I guess that is not the thing to do. Ground Control says get back in there and see what you can do to save the station. And then, to top things off, the cosmonauts lost communication with the ground. So, while that's going on, flight control is trying to figure out all the possible scenarios to help the cosmonauts on what to do before the next communication session begins. So definitely a tense and frightening time for everyone. On top of that, Moscow has to call to find out what is going on on the salute. So, the flight director, Yelizhev, has to stop and talk to them. And he gave, I guess, his most optimistic guess about what was going on and tried to get them off the line so he could get back to work. Now, all this got me wondering. Would not an emergency situation like this be one of the primary things the cosmonauts would train for. Why would you not train for an emergency evacuation? Surely, there must have been some training for this, but I guess it wasn't enough. So, instead, they were told by the ground which pages to read in the manual to do their evacuation. Maybe it's just me, but I really don't understand that. Now, on top of all this, Volkov, being the most experienced cosmonaut there, because he's had a previous flight, decides to take command of the situation. Could this be the first space mutiny? I don't, I don't think I would take it quite that far, but it certainly upset the apple cart. I'm sure Volkov was trying to be helpful, but according to my source, he was way too emotional. So the ground now had to calm down Volkov and remind him that he was not in charge and eventually send him off to bed to get some rest. 
It seemed that after that accident, flight control was really trying to make sure everyone, particularly Volkov, <laughs> knew that Dabrowski was in charge. Anyway, it was a very scary situation, and to their credit, the cosmonauts managed to salvage their mission. I wish, I really, really wish I could say that everything was going to get better from here on out, but sadly, I cannot. If you are enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting it. For the past seven years, we have been entirely listener-supported. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Over the last fortnight, we had several new contributions, and I would like to thank Russ J. from Lexington, North Carolina, who donated at the Orion level and earned a rocket emoji. Stefan F. from Germany donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Stephanie G. from California donated at the Gemini level. Jim B. from New Mexico donated at the Gemini level and earned a rocket emoji. David W. from Northern Ireland donated at the Mercury level. Megan T. donated at the Mercury level and earned a galaxy emoji. Colin S. from Pennsylvania donated at the Mercury level and earned a shooting star emoji. Ian M. from Canada donated at the Vostok level. Edgar E. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. And Michael S. pledged on Patreon at the Gemini level. Our total Patreon donors for this year have reached 243. That is down four from the beginning of the year. Our goal is to reach 300. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 289 with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. I am pleased to announce the winning donor. For this episode, the winner has a choice of a Space Rocket History magnet, or two coasters, or two stickers, or two static clings. Now, the static clings look almost like stickers, but they don't have the glue on the back of them like a sticker. Instead, they are vinyl, and they stick to most smooth, glass-like surfaces. You know, these uh, static clings look like stickers, and I think I may have sent some static clings out instead of stickers. So if I sent you a static cling, and you would like a sticker instead, just let me know. Okay, now for the winner. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Robert Persons. Robert Persons, if you would email us, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com to tell us your address and your logo preference, coaster, magnet, sticker, or static links, we'll mail this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 289 of you who contributed thus far in 2020. Okay, as I mentioned before, This episode marks the seventh year anniversary of my two-year podcast. (laughs) Mrs. SRH and I want to thank you all for coming along with us on this journey, and special thanks to the donors who have kept the podcast going. Now, we usually celebrate episode milestones with the Tang Ceremony. 
but this isn't an episode milestone. This is an annual milestone. So, the next Tang ceremony will be for episode 350, but I still wanted to engage in a little celebration to mark seven years. For the occasion, I still have Mrs. SRH here, live and in the color of your imagination. Say hello, Mrs. SRH. Hello, Mrs. SRH. Today, (laughs) we will celebrate the seventh anniversary with an astronaut cookies and cream ice cream sandwich. Yum. Now, I will read the description from the package. It says, this is real ice cream. We take the ice cream you know and love and with the power of freeze-drying, create a yummy new snack. When you remove the water from ice cream, what do you have? A delicious, crunchy, yet creamy sweetness that melts in your mouth. Sandwiched between two chocolatey wafer cookies. Okay, I will now open the package. Inside the package is a freeze-dried ice cream sandwich wrapped in another piece of paper here. And I just peel that off. Yeah, it's wrapped like an ice cream sandwich, isn't it? Yes, (laughs) it is. Look at that. Doesn't that look appealing? Well, it looks kind of like a dusty ice cream sandwich. (laughs) It's like it's got dust on it. It's a bit dusty. (laughs) All right. I'm going to... Here, you take this part here. All right. I'll, I'll rip open me some more. Yeah, okay. Really oh, there it look, goes. Oops. Bad. It's, it's falling apart here. Crumbly. Yeah, it's a little crumbly. All right. Are you ready to try it? Yes. All right, let's try it. <laughs> Crunchy ice cream. <laughs> ah. Oh, my. I am really surprised. That is not bad. Delicious. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You almost feel like it's eating like a um, a uh, Oreo cookie kind of taste, doesn't it? Oh, <laughs> it's just great. <laughs> I think it's not that bad. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> mm. No, it really isn't bad. It's about like a cookie. You're right. Freeze it's dried. Not, it's just not soft like ice cream, but it's more like a you're eating a cookie. Yes. Quite delightful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Seven years. We appreciate you listening. Thank you so much. My sources for this week's episode were the same as the last two episodes, so I won't repeat them here. And that is all we have for episode number 332. I will try to have episode 333 posted by Thursday, February 27th. So long for now.